This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got a fantastic episode. Mr. Dustin Woodhouse is back by popular demand. That is right. He's, he's always in demand. He's Everybody always. always wants to hear from him. He's been on the show, what, three, four times in the last three, four years, and he's a busy guy. And we should say, he's actually, his role has morphed since he's been on the show. His first time on the show, he was a mortgage broker, one of the best. One of the best. One, over, of the busy, one of the busiest. Yeah, well. like 200 ends a year, whatever. Big mortgage broker. Then he transitioned into being a coach, uh, more of a guy that was traveling around. Public speaker. Public speaker. And that's because he has three volumes of Be the Better Broker, which is his wildly successful book. Fantastic book. And uh, that obviously led to more speaking opportunities. And now, Matt, this is the most exciting iteration of Dustin Woodhouse. He is the president of Mortgage Architects, which is the fifth largest mortgage firm, I believe. In Canada. In Canada, yes. Yeah. So, and there's 1,300 mortgage brokers that work there. Yeah, exactly. And he's he's at the helm. El Presidente. So, uh, yeah, I think it's El Presidente. Uh, Dante, uh, Matt. Uh, <laughs> I like my pasta firm. <laughs> one, thing's, one thing's for sure. They're number five right now with Dustin at the helm. They're probably headed to number one. So, yes. so watch, watch that. Uh, and I should say we had Dustin on. Because he just put out actually a really good, he's still fairly active on his blog. He puts about 15, 20 posts a year. He just had a a, a comment on the You would call it budget. a barn burner of a post. It was a barn burner of a post. It was about the uh, federal budget. 
Um, subtitle federal budget nonsense so you can get a sense of what he thought of the budget but he calls it gift wrapped gift wrap pretty good pretty good kind of yeah. meta kind of meta yeah. i would have also accepted nothing burger uh potentially a post called much ado about nothing um a shakespeare reference a like shakespeare that. reference okay let's let's leave it to dustin for the subject lines but uh <laughs> but what else do we got you've been uh well, strategizing while you're away i you know what i've been thinking a lot about uh stuff that we're doing programs that we're putting out in the near future and we've asked a lot of people actually on our instagram we just did a poll for upcoming episodes we've had a lot of responses well, and that was inspired from a recent review was it not it was yeah we had a review a really great review called um wealth of knowledge i'm not sure what he's referring to maybe perhaps uh uh himself yeah Maybe the episode, maybe the podcast. The review is from the review guy two one nine eight seven two. You know who uh, you are. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I believe that's the year he was born. Uh, now he says one of the things he says is keep up the good work. But he also gives us some ideas for upcoming episodes. He wants commercial real estate, mobile home parks, storage facilities, systems to scale businesses. Um, That's a great one. Goal planning for time efficiency, which we're huge fans of. Um, Mortgage rates, lending, financing, accounting. These are all things that he wants to hear more of. And we want to hear from you about what you want to hear more of. And uh, you can actually let us know. We're going to be doing some polling on our Instagram, Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Or just get Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Yeah. Or you can just get in touch on our website at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. But yeah. uh, but this is a long one, Adam. This is, Matt. We've got a, a long episode. It's a, it's a really, really fantastic interview with Dustin Woodhouse. So enjoy. Okay, so we are back with uh, fan favorite and past guest Dustin Woodhouse, who is currently now the president of Mortgage Architects, and I'll let Dustin talk about Mortgage Architects and his new role, uh, but how are you doing, Dustin? I'm doing well. It's uh, good to be back. Thank you so much. I always enjoy our chat. Thanks for taking the time today, Dustin, and uh, it sounds like you were always a busy guy, but it sounds like you're quite a bit busier now. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, a little bit of a, a interesting career path, right? Uh, I sort of did the mortgage brokering thing for uh, about 10 years and full bore, and then moved over the last couple of years into the training uh, side, which wasn't really a master plan uh, per se. I you know, just wrote a couple of books on the business because there were no books out there that talked about what it is to be a mortgage broker. What is it really all about? And uh, from those books flowed a bunch of speaking opportunities and then coaching opportunities. And uh, and just through a series of conversations with uh, the right people, I find myself in, yeah, kind of an interesting spot. I'm, uh, as you mentioned, president of Mortgage Architects, which is a group of about 1,300 mortgage brokers and agents across Canada. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we're the fifth largest mortgage brokerage. Uh, for now, you know, number five is no good. We're going to have to. We're going to work on that. But, uh, <laughs> that's my new mission in life. That's great. That's great. For for people that haven't heard your past episodes on our podcast, can you can you tell them a little bit about yourself outside of uh, your your new role? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I bought my first property when I was uh, twenty two years old. I just, I've got the document floating around my office. It just uh, The title certificate just popped up here somewhere, holding it in my hand earlier this morning. Um, wow. So I'm 47 at this point. So, you know, 
as I say, from a very early age, uh, you know, real estate has uh, proven to be the very best investment I've ever made. Um, uh, my uh, wife and I bought a number of properties, uh, you know, through the course of our marriage, and uh, it's been, as I say, it's been the hands down the best investment I've ever made. I don't think there's a lot of people that bought Google shares, you know, at three bucks and held on to three thousand or whatever the range went. You know, most people, anything else that they're investing in, there's a fast exit. So as soon as it goes up a little bit, people take the winnings off the table and get out. Or as soon as it goes down a little bit, uh, they'll sometimes jump out. Whereas real estate, it protects you from yourself. Because if you wake up in the middle uh, of the night thinking, you know what, I think everything's about to, to stop. You know, the, the merry-go-round is going to stop. The music's going to stop. I need to sell all my real estate. There's no button on the end of the keyboard to sell and have it all gone, you know, an hour later. It's not how it works. It's a slow, clunky process. And thank goodness it is because, you know, from the time you wake up in the middle of the night thinking I need to get rid of my real estate to the time you're actually, you know, signing a sale contract, as, as we know, that can be a matter of weeks, typically, at the very least, or depending on the market, months. And you have time to sort of rethink things and go, oh, you know, wait a minute. And and so as I say, I, I, that's one of the reasons I like real estate so much is that it's it is a little slower moving and it protects you from yourself. It's hard to be an impulse buyer or an impulse seller when it comes to real estate, you know. And and then as I you know and as I say, just to put my own transition in a nutshell, you know, I, I bought and sold a number of properties through my 20s and early 30s and kind of missed the signposts on the highway of life. Like maybe I should actually be involved in that industry somehow. So I, I was always involved in automotive aftermarket uh, performance parts tuning and ran a very successful mail order company up until it wasn't successful anymore. And sort of had to reinvent myself in my uh, mid thirties. And uh, again, I had a number of people around me saying, you should really be a mortgage broker. And I didn't listen to all of them right away, but finally somebody got through to me and I got into the business and lo and behold, kind of hit the ground running and had some very strong success right out of the gates. And, um, you know, 1,695 mortgage transactions later, uh, I, I have a decent grasp of mortgage financing. And, and and I say it like that because, as you guys know, like, you know, the, the, if you had a nickel for every time you heard a realtor or a mortgage broker say, you know, 25 years in the business and I've never had to X, I've never had to get this document or I've never had to have this done or that's real estate. Like it's, it's so complicated. It's so complex. You can be in the business for 25 years. I mean, I've only been in it 11 or 12 years, um, but you can do thousands of transactions and still it's a brand new day. Like you're having something happen that no one's ever seen before. Yeah. And uh, so for some people, of course, that's incredibly frustrating, but but for a lot of us, that's kind of what keeps us invigorated. It's it's what's interesting about the business, and of course, the government uh, keeps on. Uh, that's the segue. I, I, I was going to say, well, you, you're <laughs> you're one of the those. few guests we have that consistently creates their own segues. I, I <laughs> We're going to be out of a job yeah. soon. I had moved away from the mic. I was just lying on the couch listening, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> 
but no, that is a, it is a perfect segue, Dustin, to to talk about um, the government involved in real estate and specifically the federal budget that came uh, down last Tuesday. Um, so we're recording this kind of basically a week after the federal budget. You uh, have a mailer that we should say is fantastic. You you sent a mailer out uh, with your thoughts, and uh, yeah, we'd love to hear them here. Yeah, I, I still have my my active blog, um, and uh, it, I guess the, I'm not I'm not looking like I don't monetize it per se, but you know, DustinWoodhouse.ca is where I've sort of been typing up a blog, and like every spring, I do another post on an investment property that we bought seven years ago, and I just update the numbers on our return on investment, and I try, I try and put out. 15 or 20 posts a year. And I'm going to continue to try and do that. I've got to change that site around a little bit because I'm not actively brokering mortgages anymore at all. Uh, So it's really going to go just down to a single page of, you know, Dustin's mortgage thoughts. Um, But yeah, like I've, I've been involved on the the board of mortgage professionals, Canada for three and a half years. I've gone to Ottawa. I've sat with uh, Ian Fouché, Bill Morneau's right-hand man, uh, for a lengthy meeting, and, and I've had a conversations with a number of uh, MPs in, in Ottawa as well, and, and all different levels of government about, you know, can we can we roll some of these changes back? Could we, going as far back as three years ago, hey, could could we hold off on making some of these changes? Could we adjust some of these things that you want to do before you do them? And uh, it's it's been very very interesting watching the government do what they've done. And, and of course, their first real heavy-hitting round of changes was back in the fall of 2016. I mean, arguably, you can go back to 2012 when they brought in the B20 lending guidelines. There's this, there, there's, there's constant tweaking. So, so to sort of back it up a little bit and, and make a bit of a lighthearted remark, you know, in our industry, in the mortgage industry, people talk about rocket mortgages out of the U.S., you know, are, are we going to have a rocket mortgage attack in Canada? And is it all going to get done on your phone? And, you know, 10 seconds, you're going to be approved for a mortgage. No, that's not happening anytime soon. I think the world's most frustrating job has got to be being an IT developer in the Canadian mortgage space. Because just when you think you've got your app ready to launch, just when you think you're going to take out bankers, brokers, whoever, and totally transform the industry, the government steps in and lays out changes that are so ridiculously complicated, needlessly complicated. It's it's almost comical. I mean, if you if you if you couldn't laugh at it, you'd be crying because it's it's just sad what they keep doing. I mean, they just keep making it so much more complicated than it needs to be, and not really delivering any value. And and there's these mixed messages. You know, like the government January 1st, 2018, cut back every single Canadian household's mortgage qualifications. Actually, let's back up one more notch. Back to 2016, they took away 1.1 million Canadians' abilities, 1.1 million Canadian households' abilities to refinance and pull equity out of their property because those 1.1 million Canadians live in mobile homes. And the government made a tweak, just a quiet little change, and eliminated refinancing for mobile homes. And no one cares. 
Nobody cares. And those clients, uh, the, the people that live in those homes, when they have a health issue, an employment issue, a, a challenge of some kind, maybe they want to take some equity out to help their own children with a down payment or a wedding or a start a business, whatever it is. Um, they go to the bank and they get told no, and they assume that it's big, bad bank. It's not. It's big, bad government. It's it's mismanaged government. So, you know, you had the, the sort of first group that, again, no one really seemed to care. Like, it, it, it didn't didn't make any waves. And then you fast forward, that was October of 2016, you fast forward to January 1st of 2018, and in the face of all of this talk about, you know, foreign buyers, you know, buying properties. And so we create these foreign buyer taxes to make it more expensive for foreign buyers, which is totally ridiculous as a solution. You know, we have one of the most robust land title registration systems in the world. If you want to limit foreign ownership, then you just say you get to own one property, period, the end. You don't say buy as many as you want, just pay us an extra 15% or, or whatever. You know, the taxes have been a moving target as yeah, well. 20% And now. really, yeah, 20% now, that's right. Um, and, and so the government, what did they do in response to these things? Uh, the federal government said, we're actually going to bring in a stress test. And that stress test is going to reduce the typical Canadian families borrowing capacity by 35%. How's that helping a Canadian family get into home ownership, get into the real estate market? It is not helping in any way, shape, or form at all. I mean, that's great that they borrowed in taxes to make it more expensive for foreign buyers, but then they kneecapped every single Canadian who wanted to buy. They cut them back by 35%, and because they weren't intelligence enough or because they were super intelligent, depends how you want to look at it, they didn't index that stress test. So that stress test is structured in such a way that as interest rates increase, you will qualify for significantly less. Like it, it's 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 unbelievable. And uh, and so interest rates did creep up from the time that stress test was announced. And then you're, you're about 40% right now. You're able to borrow about 40% less than you were able to borrow. And to give you real numbers, it used to be that $15,000 a year of income got you $100,000 worth of mortgage money. Today, it takes 20000 to get that same 100000 So again, you got a $60,000 a year household income. You live in Kamloops, uh, single-income household. You could have bought a four hundred thousand dollars property January thirty-first, or probably December thirty-first of twenty seventeen, or earlier January first of twenty eighteen. You just got cut back from four hundred to three hundred. How is that helping a middle-class family in a small town? That is not helping them at all. Never mind Vancouver and Toronto where incomes are higher. So maybe you have an average household income of 120,000 and those people were able to qualify for, you know, upwards of 800,000 in mortgage uh, financing. And, uh, and, and, you know, for people who listen and go 800,000, no one should have a mortgage that big. Uh, those are people who aren't doing the math, you know, an $800,000 mortgage uh, a couple of years ago, for instance, uh, the payment would have been about $3,200 a month. The income in that household was about 6,500 net. So it's less than half their income after taxes. 
making the mortgage payment. And a lot of times, $800,000 mortgage was on a million-dollar house that had a basement suite that was renting for 1600 So they were actually only paying 1600 a month of their 6500 net after-tax income towards housing. Like, this is why in Canada the default rate is you know, typically 0.29%. The only people going into default in Canada largely are deceased. That's why they stopped making mortgage payments because they passed away. You know, people don't seem again to understand that. Like we we don't have a default issue in Canada. So the government, all these changes they brought in, they were to put out a fire that didn't exist. So so maybe just to sort of circle around that point about to to solve a problem that didn't exist. Like clearly, it's it's because people are either worried about. Canadians being over leveraged or becoming over leveraged like what do you, is that not an issue in in your mind it sounds like it's not it is absolutely not an issue because unlike the majority of uh, journalists who write about this topic i do the math and unlike the majority of people who are worried about a debt to income ratio of 180% i can do the math like next time someone says canadians are in debt too deep say what do you mean well, the debt-to-income ratio. Okay, how much is it? Well, and they might know. They might know. They might say it's 180%. Okay, what does that mean? Can you put that in dollars for me? I'm not going to put you guys on the spot. But for the listener who's listening to this right now, can you articulate what that means in dollars? What does 180% debt-to-income ratio mean? And most people go, well, it just it's bad. It's scary. It's, it's not good. You know, it's a problem. But dollarize it. You know, some of my favorite phrases are dollarize and do the math. You know, math is hard, so nobody likes to do the math. So let's do the math. What they're saying is a household with a $100,000 income, so $8,333 per month gross income, that household has $180,000 worth of debt, and that's a bad thing. How on earth is that a bad thing? A $180,000 mortgage would cost about $800 a month to carry. If it's a high-ratio mortgage, it might cost $930 a month to carry. If I've got an $8,300 a month gross income, I've got about $6,000 after tax. Are you seriously telling me $1,000 a month or less for a shelter payment is too much? Are you joking? It's ridiculous. That's not a problem. So 180% debt-to-income ratio is not a problem if the debt is a mortgage. Oh, but it's credit card debt. Okay, look, I touched on the number earlier, 1,695 mortgage transactions, which incidentally is about 3,700 mortgage applications. And in all those applications and those thousands of applications, which actually do represent a statistically accurate slice of mortgage applicants and homeowners, I only ever had one client that had $180,000 in credit card debt, and their net worth was over $6 million. So sure, they had $180,000 worth of credit card debt. It was actually two hundred and twenty, But they had a net worth of $6 million. Now, their income was on the floor. They had virtually no income, so their debt-to-income ratio was completely skewed. But again, they had a $6 million net worth, so it's not a problem. 
But let's let's say, okay, let's take your example, uh, your worst case scenario, Mr. Skeptic, Mr. Pessimist, um, $180,000 worth of credit card debt at 20%. Okay, so that's like a $3,000 a month carrying cost. It's, it's, it's ludicrous, it's outrageous, it shouldn't even be allowed. Good point. Zero government intervention on credit card qualifications and credit card debt. That's a fascinating my, point. My, my 19-year-old son was approved for a $10,000 credit card limit. He made $10,000 that year. So does that, how does that make any sense? Like it, it, it doesn't. And if people turned over their credit card statements and actually found the fine print, it shows if you make the minimum payment, how many years it takes you to pay off that credit card debt. We have no exaggeration. Up to 180 years is the, the highest one I've seen. Uh, one of my own credit card balances, it was 115 years. 115 years to pay off the balance. Like that's my grandkids paying off the balance. You know, grandpa and grandma had a great weekend in Vegas, <laughs> and now the grandkids are paying it off 115 years later. Are you kidding me? Like, how, but but again, that's a whole different topic. But going back to the math and dollarizing this, like I say, that household has six grand a month after tax, and you're saying they're carrying 180 grand in credit card debt at 20%, and that's crazy, and they're going to really? They still have three grand a month left over to pay the rent and buy groceries is a little tight. And I'm not saying that's right, but what I am saying is that also doesn't exist. You think you, you don't have very many people out there. Like you probably have one in 10,000, one in a hundred thousand that has that amount of credit card debt against that kind of income. It's more of a mix. Mm-hmm. It's more of a mix. A big chunk of it is mortgage debt. A little bit of it is line of credit. Some of it is 0% car loan, some of it might be a rotating credit card balance of three grand, five grand, seven grand, and a hundred and eighty percent debt to income ratio doesn't mean a thing. It should not be elevating anybody's blood pressure. And the other way it's factored as well is all of your debt. So I mentioned earlier that my wife and I owned a number of investment properties. So when you actually took my income on the, a random year and put it against all of the debt we had, technically I had a 1,200% debt-to-income ratio. I slept like a baby. You know, like, yeah, my debt is 12 times my income. So what? I have tenants who are paying off the debt. I have positive cash flow. And I'm in a market that's had a 1% vacancy rate my entire life. Yes, it could change, but is it going to? Do we really believe people are going to stop coming to Vancouver? People don't want to live in Vancouver anymore? It's not going to happen. So, so yes, we absolutely put too much focus on issues like debt to income, but that's the federal government. And so, as a segue into actually what we're going to talk about, <laughs> that's, that's why you see these incredibly convoluted uh, you know, changes that they're making or, or an offering that they're making. So let's, let's take the messiest one first, the shared ownership, the equity stake the government's going to have in your home. Um, there's lots of people writing thousands of words, doing all kinds of math breakdowns on what that looks like. Uh, I don't see a point. 
I don't see a point in analyzing it. Um, there's very little point in talking about it beyond saying this. You have to be capped at $120,000 household income. So if you make $121,000, too bad, so sad. You're, you don't get you don't get the you don't have access to the program. The thing is, if you have a household income of 120,000, you actually qualify right now for a $580,000 mortgage. However, under the program, the maximum is going to be 480. Well, again, as a somewhat experienced mortgage broker, I can tell you in the Vancouver market and certainly in the Toronto market and in many, many outlying markets, there are very few families borrowing less mortgage money than they qualify for. There were, in 2017 and previous, many people who borrowed far less than they qualified for. You know, the $100,000 household, they qualified for $800,000, they said that's crazy, and they borrowed five fifty. right? But now that $100,000 household qualifies for 500 and they're borrowing every penny of that 500 because they can't believe they can't have 550. They can afford it all day long, but now they can't have it. Mm-hmm. So the government, the, the stress test, is, has, it's just kind of crossed the line. Like the majority of people are saying, what? I can't have like, it's only like 200 bucks a month more. Why can't I have that extra 50 grand? So they really cut aggressively. So to now say, hey, we're giving you this program where we're going to put 5% or 10% uh, up for down payment, and that'll take the edge off your payments, and it'll make it more uh, affordable for you to get into the market. Well, sure, that's great, but you're also telling me I also I have to further restrict myself by another 100000 Well, like you're, you're you're down to like I don't know 89 families in Canada that this is actually going to work for, and there's all the unanswered questions about if the property goes up in value, does the Fed share on the profit when the property is sold? If the property goes down in value, does the Fed share on the loss, or do I owe the Fed the full five percent or ten percent uh, equity stake? Like, are they sharing in the win and the loss? Like, what, what's, what's that going to look like? Right. And then the bigger issue that none of these things are actually going to be clarified for another two to three months. Oh, you mean summertime after the spring market? So if I'm a buyer and I don't really understand what's happening, should I wait and see? And, and you know, my advice, as I mentioned in the blog post, is no, you don't wait. You don't wait for the government to fix the housing situation if you find a property that you can qualify for that works for you, you buy that property when you find that property. You know, waiting for the government to clarify this whole mess, uh, I, I think, is somewhat pointless. Because again, you have to be buying a good 20% below what you actually qualify for, and you already qualify for 40% less than you did, you know, a year and a quarter ago. So you're buying less than half of what you could have bought in 2017. Well, that, that doesn't, that math doesn't work for very many households anywhere in Canada. And, and in terms of other, uh, anything else in the budget that, that looked interesting apart from the shared equity, uh, uh component for first time home buyers? Well, interesting. I mean, there, there's nothing in there for existing 
mortgage holders, existing homeowners. And I think that's an important point to make. Like if you already own a home in Canada and you were hoping you might be able to actually A, access some of the equity in that home, uh, too bad, so sad, no changes there. Or B, if you were hoping you were going to be able to move to a new house across the street and take your mortgage with you, in many, many cases, uh, yeah, again, yeah, no, sorry, too bad, so sad. They will not grandfather your original mortgage you qualified for when you move to a new property. So the single most important takeaway from this entire conversation uh, as we go into the spring market is for the people thinking about moving, before you list your property for sale, before you enter into a binding contract selling that property, and before you enter into a contract to buy a new property, you best have a conversation with your existing mortgage broker or banker, ideally involving that existing lender, and determine whether or not you can actually requalify for the mortgage you have right now. Because even though you've never missed a payment, even though your income might have gone up slightly, even though you have impeccable credit, that doesn't matter. You may no longer qualify for that mortgage, i.e., you make 100000 a year and your mortgage is 600000 You borrowed 700 five years ago. You've paid it down to 600 you You're an amazing rock star human being. Too bad. You only get 500 now. Oh, but I make 110,000. Well, great. It's good that you got a raise. You get 550. But my mortgage is 600. Too bad. You can't move it over. You don't qualify for extra, even though you make more money. You qualify for less, even though you make more money. And that message cannot be put out there any more, you know, clearly, any, any more loudly. Like that's where we see the biggest problems yeah and that that strikes me as is um i mean there's a couple obvious things about that but but just growing families people moving for work like that doesn't even seem smart economically for like the larger canadian economy to kind of limit the mobility of people in that way i mean there's not a lot of logic there well bang on i mean but we are talking about government and 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 i don't mean that facetiously like Logic is not a part of the equation in as far as we think, because we're thinking about Canadian families. The government is not, not directly. So if you go to the uh, Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, OFSI, if you go to their website and you look up their mandate, um, their mandate is to protect the stability of the Canadian banking system. That's their mandate. These are the guys making the rules around mortgage qualifications. So it's not to help Canadians own a home. It's not to help make your life easier. It's not to help stimulate the economy. It's not, it's not to do anything other than protect the stability of the Canadian banking system. It's about the banks. And so they're trying to protect the banks from themselves. They're trying to make sure the banks don't lend out too much money. And, and they're hampering the bank. So again, when you can't get that loan, it's not the bank. It's not the bank that doesn't want to give you the money. The bank wants to give you the money. It's OSFI. That's, that's really interesting, Dustin, about uh, OSFI. One question I had looking back at what we've been discussing here is why the Canadian government is so laser-like focused on housing policy when consumer debt is so high and there seems to be very little uh, action in that regard. Can you speak to that? 
I absolutely can. And a few years ago, I had the same question, and I and I I, I couldn't come up with an answer. And then I went to Ottawa, and then I sat with some people who set this legislation in motion, and uh, and now I understand it. And it's because the Canadian government doesn't have anything on the line with regards to your credit card balance. But the Canadian government does have something on the line with regards to home ownership in the form of CMHC, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Uh, interesting. Which, by the way, is one of the most profitable government corps in existence. Uh, general revenues have had over $30 billion dumped into them, the coffers, uh, from CMHC. CMHC generates massive, massive profits. And uh, it's 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 unbelievable, you know, what, what they generate. But that's the thing. They have a stake in the real estate industry, whereas they do not have a stake in consumer debt. And they look at consumer debt as self-regulating. And they look at it as a business. So the banks are in the business of uh, putting credit card money out there. They know what the default rates are. They price accordingly. I mean... Look at the interest rates. Like we have these record low interest rates for the last 10 years plus. Yet, I don't know about you, my visa statement still says whatever, 19.9, just like it did back in 1991 or whenever I got my first credit card. Like those interest rates never change. The cost of borrowing to the banks has dropped from like 10% to 2%. And they didn't pass any of that on to consumers who run up credit card debt. And I guess part of that must be the politics of, you know, people that can't afford housing, you know, that that there's empathy out there. Uh, people that run up a credit card bill, it's like, well, you know, you hung yourself with a rope that was available to you and it's it's an individual's fault. Whereas the housing situation seems to be more, um, you know, or at least it affects more people, it seems. I don't know. Yeah. And yet it affects nobody because Canadians do not default on their mortgages. Right. Canadians do not miss mortgage payments, but you're right. It, it plays on, well, it goes back to the earlier comment about debt to income ratio and, and misconceptions and how people don't do math. And, and like the average person on the street does not understand how all of this is working and, and what is actually happening. They don't, I don't, we don't, you know, like I didn't, I, I'm immersed in this now. So I'm seeing it more clearly. And, like I say, the government uh, regulators' mandate is to protect the stability of the Canadian banking system. That's all they're focused on. Well, consumer debt is an incredibly profitable division. It's rock solid. It's very stable. Yeah. It's much more profitable than mortgages, actually. I mean, and that's what it boils down to. Is it profitable enough to remain stable in the face of any kind of economic crash? And uh, so it, it's it's kind of upside down. Canadians think the government wants to help them get into a home. The government does not care about you getting into a home. They do not care. I mean, look no further than, again, let's touch on one more of these federal budget tweaks. You can now borrow up to $35,000 instead of $25,000 against your RSP to help with your down payment because... Right. The government wants to make home ownership easier for you. What a load of garbage. Again, in almost 1,700 mortgage transactions, I have had three people borrow money against their RSPs for down payment. 
three out of 1700. And I don't know why they did because it really didn't make any sense to do that. But why they did is because largely they didn't do the math. I mean, do the math. You borrow $10,000 from your RRSP, you have to pay it back in 15 years. That's a $55 a month payment. Again, the math, right? 15 years, 12 months per year, 180, 180 into 10,000, $55 a month. That's the payment you have to make to yourself because you've just become the bank. You've borrowed money from yourself to buy a property. So for 15 years, you're paying this 55 a month back. Whereas had you borrowed it from a bank, the payment would be about $45 a month. So you've actually increased your payment by 10 bucks a month to borrow the money from yourself instead of the bank. It's actually costing you more cash flow wise. Well, but I'm not paying interest to the bank. Ooh, you know, the evil bank. I'm not paying them interest. Really? Interest rates are like 3% roughly, just averaging out fixed versus variable, et cetera. Let's just call it, call it three and a half percent. Three and a half percent. If you are not earning better than a three and a half percent return inside your RRSP, you're doing something wrong. I mean, just buy an S&P index 500 fund. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't even need a financial advisor. You don't need any of that. Just buy an S&P 500 index fund that's returned 8. I think it's 8.38% for the last 85 years. Now, I know that might not happen next year or the year after, but for 85 years, it's been 83 I think it's 8.38%. That's 5% more than the cost of borrowing the money from the bank. So why would you take your money out of your RSP? That's hurting your retirement savings plan. That's it's defeating the whole purpose. So it makes no sense to take your money out of an RRSP. And by the way, on RRSPs, I would go find somebody who's 72 years old and ask them how happy they are they invested in RRSPs because now they're being forced to melt that RRSP down. They're being forced to take that money out and probably they're not very happy about it, but that's a whole different topic. Yeah. So again, like, you know, the government, how, how did that help anybody? It's, it's, it's useless. They, they put a, an exceedingly complicated uh, home ownership, you know, shared ownership piece together, which is ridiculous. And I think very few people will, will actually take the government up on that offer. They throw this little red herring in there about being able to borrow an extra 10000 Actually, a little asterisk, that's where the existing homeowner may actually win. So again, there'll be like 13 people in all of Canada that this may help. But if you're in the middle of a, if you're, if you're getting divorced, not this year, you have to wait till next year. So hold it together for one more year. If you're getting divorced in 2020, like seriously, right? I mean, I say that jokingly, of course, it's not a joking matter, but, but you know, that's what the government has said. If in 2020 you're getting divorced and accessing this extra $10,000 for a spousal buyout uh, helps you, you can do that. Well, thanks, guys. But, you know, that, that 40% haircut you gave me on my ability to borrow, that's what's actually holding me back from being able to buy out my spouse, <laughs> right? right? Like 10000 bucks isn't really going to be that helpful. And, oh, sorry, you're giving me access to 10000 bucks of my own money. And, again, the ironic twist in all that is, what are you really talking about? I can go to the bank and I can draw $10,000 out of my RSP if I want to. I just have to pay the income tax on it. Right. 
So, so, so they're deferring a couple thousand bucks worth of tax. Like it's, it's, there's nothing in that federal budget to help existing homeowners. There's nothing of substance that's going to materially help first-time home buyers. All they needed to do was change the amortization from 25 years to 30 years, which would have been the equivalent of a 1% interest rate reduction mathematically. Like that's how much money it would have freed up. And uh, would change the math on the payments, and life would be good, or ease up on the stress test a little bit, like just some simple basic tweaks. But instead, they created this incredibly complex formula. Dustin, how do you think it's been perceived by the general public? I think the general public probably remains as confused as ever about what any of it is supposed to mean. Yeah, that, that's that's my impression as well. And I was actually thinking that there'd be a bigger splash uh, this with this budget, just considering kind of where we are in the political cycle. But um, it definitely seemed like it was, uh, yeah, weak tea. It would have been nice if they'd thrown something uh, to the voter, for sure. But they they didn't seem to. It's like they're unaware that an election is coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe shifting gears a little bit here, Dustin, we always have had uh, you on to talk about the market in the past, and, and you have uh, you always have strong opinions on, on where we are and, and what the future holds. Um, what is your sense of the, of the market here in, in Metro Vancouver right now and where we're headed? Well, at the at the risk of getting hung up on here, uh, you know, being being that I'm speaking with realtors, <laughs> um, I look. I, I stand by my earlier comment. When it comes to an owner occupied residence, the right time to buy is the day you find the property that fits your needs and fits your budget and works for you. I mean, properties are just about like fingerprints, like you know. There's, there's, there's that general talk about cookie-cutter condos, boxes in the air, but they're not cookie-cutter. Every building is different. Every location is different. Are you on the east, east, northwest side of the building? Like, you know, which side of the building are you on? There's all these nuances that matter. And it's not easy to find a property that fits you and works for you. It is not that easy. So when you find it, you buy it. And it doesn't matter whether the market is appreciating or depreciating. None of that matters if you're going to be there for the next seven years. And I'm primarily speaking to Vancouver, greater Vancouver area people when I say that. Uh, But the majority of Canada, that holds true. You know, yes, there's been dips, uh, but typically seven years later, you're able to get out intact. You're not having to write a check to get out of the property. So that's when you buy. Now, that being said, do we need to rush out and look at 32 properties tomorrow afternoon? Uh, Because holy cow, it's going to be multiple, you know, multiple bids and everyone's going to go subject free and whatnot. That's not exactly the market we're in, although that's still popping up in certain areas and in certain price points. I mean, there's a lot of pressure, thanks to all of these combined regulations the government's put in place. There's a lot of pressure on the sub $1 million market. Anything under a million, there is still a lot of people 
packed into that pool of buyers. And as soon as you breach $1 million, as soon as, the, as soon as you add the penny and you're at $1 million even, it, it's crickets to some extent. Like it's, it's much quieter because you've got far fewer buyers. That was another thing we were asking. We were saying to you know, the government, can CMHC bump their limits you know, from a mil- one penny below a million to maybe 1.2 million, maybe index it to the actual inflation or the house price index or something. So to take away that artificial barrier that exists, you know, you see the condo priced at 999, 52 people go through it on the weekend. The one that's priced at a million and 50, 11 people show up to look at it because of that artificial barrier that's created. But the market itself you know, speaking about Vancouver, I don't get the sense that we're going to go on any wild tear this year or next year, uh, not without some kind of uh, release of the different rules that have been put in place by the government. Um, I think the pressure is going to maintain. You've still got a steady inflow of people coming into Vancouver. They all got to live somewhere, um, you know, and, and supply, supply, supply. That's the, always the challenge. And with all the government tweaking that's been done at every level of government, I think developers are a little more leery than ever to start new projects. So I think that we're actually going to see a little bit of a decrease in supply. The demand is still percolating. It's still there. It's not going away. It's, it's just it's hampered by government regulations. So people want to buy, they just and they can afford to buy, but they can't because they can't qualify on paper to buy. So it's a it's a bit of a boiling cauldron, right? It's just it's like on a on a high simmer right now and and something's going to have to give eventually, but the bottom line is to me, I don't see prices skyrocketing over the next 2, 3, 4 years. Could something loosen up, you know, 3, 4 years from now and and, and could conditions change somehow and suddenly we see another 30% jump? Absolutely. I think that could and will happen. I certainly think anyone who buys today, come 2026, will be really, really glad they did. Dustin, you, you, this is kind of paraphrasing uh, something you had said on a former episode. At some point, uh, houses on the west side will be the same, same price as you know, condos and one bedroom condos in Surrey or something along those lines where we're seeing so much pressure in the sub million dollar range and so much, uh, you know, artificial downward pressure on, on the higher priced, uh, properties in Vancouver. Um, do you still stand by that or do you still see that happening in the market in your opinion? Well, to, to some extent, uh, I mean, I think what I was getting at there is like eventually everything will be a million dollars. Right. Like everything will rise to that million dollar mark because that's just inflation. You, you, you can't get away from that. I mean, there's, there's the buyer pressure. There's, there's lots and lots of buyers in that, in that price bracket. And there's just general inflation. So there's going to be a point where no properties in BC will qualify for CMHC financing because the cap is a million dollars. And you're going to get to a point where, yeah, a 400 square foot condo in Surrey is going to be eight, nine hundred grand. Like they're going to be pushing a million. Like, and someone's listening to that saying that's ridiculous. Well, believe me, if I had said 20 years ago that a 400 square foot condo in Surrey is going to be 400 grand, yeah, you'd have said I'm I'm insane, you know. But here we are. 
<laughs> right? I mean, maybe they're a little, little, little bit cheaper than that. But Not still, really. I mean, no, you know, I think you're both paying on with that stuff. You know, eight fifty a well, foot. Well, there, there you go. I, I, I was rethinking in the mat. Like I remember, um, we bought a property in Gastown at Carroll and Cordova for ninety-seven thousand bucks, a five hundred and forty square foot loft in the Van Horn building, $97,000 in 1995. And everyone said, that's insane. Who would ever pay that much? You know, you're, you're crazy. And of course, look at where it's gone. And I guarantee you that people who are paying today's prices 20 years from now will talk about how people said they were insane. I mean, you're always insane when you're buying. It's seven years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, you're a genius. That's real estate, isn't it? What what are your thoughts on the market today in terms of, are we we in a healthier market than we have been in in the last few years, in your opinion? I think healthy is a a very subjective word. I, I mean, my word would be frustrating. Because as I say, we see this steady stream of applicants with impeccable credits, good savings, great income, and they can't afford to buy. They just can't. You know, and, and then you have this level of government going on about how developers need to start building more three-bedroom units yeah. in downtown Vancouver. Well, how? Like, take the cost of development, the actual cost of building... You know, a $400,000 apartment represents $100,000 in taxation. By the time the construction is complete, 25 cents of every dollar is tax. So if the government really wanted to help make housing more affordable, they'd, they'd implement some kind of tax moratorium on new construction. And they could reduce the, cost, the prices of new construction product by 25%. But so you you've got a government saying you know you have like a municipal level of government saying we're only going to approve this development if you put X number of three bedroom units in the development, but then you have the federal government saying, Mr. and Mrs. Borrower, we're handcuffing you and not allowing you to borrow anywhere near as much money as you used to, and the developers in the middle of that equation going, well, hang on, we're being told we can't build this thing unless we build a whole bunch of these large footprint three-bedroom units, which the cost to do so puts them all over a million dollars. You can't buy a three-bedroom downtown for under a million, so they're, they're all over a million. And that means that the pool of people who qualify to buy those is tiny. It's a tiny little pool of buyers. Now, there's a whole bunch of people that want to buy them. And again, mathematically can afford to buy them, but they don't qualify to buy them. And I, I think actually that's my takeaway from this conversation. That's, that's some language that uh, I need to start using more often. You know, you can afford it, but you don't qualify for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really fascinating. Um, maybe, uh, switching gears and we know we've, we've had you on uh, two things we would like to talk to you about, Dustin, uh, what the market's doing, uh, where it's going and interest rates. And I, I'll start this, uh, question by putting myself out there. And I think last time we had you on interest rates were set to increase, uh, fairly aggressively. That was maybe what a year, 
year ago, let's call it a year. And uh, I was thinking it was definitely a time to lock in a mortgage and you were still keen on the variable. I think you've been proven right here, but uh, what are your thoughts on interest rates right now? And, uh, and presumably you're still pushing variable. Uh, well, I, so I, I'll be a bit of a smart ass. Uh, I, I don't, I don't push variable. I push logic. And, uh, again, if you apply a little bit of math and you actually learn some background stats on mortgages, which who, who wants to learn that? Uh, nobody. But if, if, if you do a little bit of research on this, you discover a couple interesting things like, uh, 65% of mortgages in Canada are broken early. They're broken at an average of 33 months. Used to be 38 months. Now we're down to 33, 10 years later. So Canadians are breaking those mortgages faster than ever. And people always say, well, I'm never going to break my mortgage. And I say, well, no, of course you're not, because your life is completely predictable and will be perfect. And you'll never have a problem. But for six out of 10 Canadians, uh, they'll go through a divorce. And that may well trigger the breaking of a mortgage before the maturity of that mortgage term. 96% of businesses will fail inside 10 years. Not your business. You'll be good. You'll be in the 4%. You're going to be in the 4% that the business doesn't fail. You're going to be in the 40% that don't get a divorce. You're really just, you're never going to have a health issue. You're not going to get transferred. Nothing's going to happen to you. Come on. Come on, something is probably going to happen. Um, you know, and now again, it's easy in a podcast format to be very glib and general about those stats. Obviously, when you're sitting one on one with clients, uh, two newlyweds who each run their own businesses, you, you got to be a little more careful with your wording. But these are the stats. You know, two out of three Canadians break the mortgage early. And when they do, they trigger a prepayment penalty they had no idea was coming because. How many Canadians sit down, apply for a new mortgage and say, hey, by the way, if I break this mortgage early, how much will it cost me to break? Well, nobody thinks they're going to break the mortgage. So nobody even thinks to ask that question. And in the case of five-year fixed mortgages, which is sadly the most common mortgage Canadians take, uh, with the majority of major financial institutions, that penalty the, the record we've seen is 11% of the balance, uh, but consistently we'll see 4.5% of the balance. 4.5% of the balance, so 4,500 per 100,000. So your average mortgage in BC is roughly 400,000. So you're talking an $18,000 penalty, whereas in a variable rate mortgage, the penalty right now is tracking at about 0.75%, so $3,000. So that's a $15,000 bet you're making that you don't even know you're making when you take a five-year fixed mortgage. You're making a bet that you're not going to be the statistical average. You're not going to break your mortgage, despite the fact that the odds are completely stacked against you. You will almost certainly break your mortgage early. So that's my main issue on fixed versus variable, the prepayment penalties. The prepayment penalties are huge in five-year fixed products. Now, mortgage brokers have access to a different suite of lenders where there is a much lower prepayment penalty on a five-year fix. It's closer to 1%. But the major chartered banks, the majority of credit unions, it's a very complicated Byzantine formula, but suffice it to say, 4.5% is the average. And that, that person that triggered the 11%, 
That was a major chartered bank. It was a million-dollar mortgage, and they had to pay a $110,000 penalty Ooh. to get out of that mortgage. Right? Like, that's... that's and, and again, why are you breaking it? You're breaking it probably because of a marital strain, a health strain, a business strain. Like, you're strained. And now you're getting, out of the blue, this huge chunk of your equity taken away from you. It's horrific. It's the very first thing I talk about in the first five minutes of every conversation with a new mortgage applicant. It's the very first thing I talk about because it's the most important thing. So, you know, on interest rates, yeah, you bet. That's that's why I'm a fan of variable because we haven't even talked about the rates. But I've already got a whole bunch of people thinking, geez, that's pretty risky. Yeah, that five-year fixed mortgage is the most risky mortgage in Canada. As far as interest rates moving around, you know, on a $400,000 mortgage, those interest rates have to move an awful lot for you to pay an extra $15,000 in interest. It's pretty much not going to happen. Right. It's, it's not, not, a, not a thing that's going to happen. And again, sort of like a basic economic theory um, thing here, what drives interest rates up is economic good news. We're booming. We're rocking. Things are amazing. That's when interest rates go up to try and put the brakes on the economy and slow things down and keep us from going into hyperinflation. Well, is our economy booming? Is it rocking and rolling? Not exactly. So that's why you're seeing interest rates just kind of flat. Right. And there we are. Interest rates not really expected to move in 2019 on the variable side. And fixed rates, we're actually watching them back backtrack, right? They're coming down. And we were, what, 379, and now we're down to 339, thereabouts, roughly speaking. Um, but the variable is absolutely my favorite. That's And I eat my own cooking. All my mortgages, variable. Hey. Eat your own cooking. That is, uh, that's one that I haven't heard before, but that is uh, sage advice as always, Dustin. Uh, maybe we'll leave it there, but we do have this section, the five wire, that I think you've Done been involved in past, with yeah. before. Are you, uh, you got five seconds? I, Sorry, I you got five always. minutes? You got five minutes? <laughs> I don't give five second answers. I give five minute answers. <laughs> We meant five minutes per question. Uh, so first question, Dustin, what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? What is my favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? To narrow it down to one is pretty tough, isn't it? It is, actually. I always say you don't, you don't pay for the square footage inside your four walls. You pay for the square footage outside your four walls. Uh, so I'm biased. I, I, I've got a footprint in two communities uh, right now. I, I spent the last 20 plus years living in Anmore. So I'm obviously biased towards Anmore. I mean, I could throw a leg over my bike, ride out the driveway, right up into the mountains. And, you know, amazing views, amazing terrain. You know, hear a pin drop in the middle of the night. We've had cougars, black bears, deer, you name it, everything wandering through our yard. So, that was pretty fantastic, but uh, going through a little bit of a life transition at the moment, and I find myself living downtown at Alberni and Thurlow. And uh, I got to say, I'm a newbie to downtown living, so you know the, the shine hasn't really worn off. But I tell you, there's something interesting for a guy who's lived in a very rural area and driven everywhere every time I needed anything. 
to go five whole days in a row without actually getting in my vehicle. Just walking everywhere is, is amazing. It's a very walkable city that we have here. And I have done a ton of traveling. I was like 91 nights on the road last year. Actually, I just got my update. I'm 27,000 air, air miles so far this year. So I'm zooming wow. back and forth across Canada. And I will say the downtown core of Vancouver, it's it's definitely one of the more vibrant, walkable downtown cores. And, and again, walking a couple blocks and jumping on the Canada line to go to the airport and take off, that's pretty uh, appealing as well. So... You know, and then Stanley Park, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I like living in the sticks and I'm liking living in the heart of the city. So, but I think, I think you ask anyone and they're going to give you a different answer because this, the greater Vancouver area is just so beautiful. You're either seeing water or mountains or green lush trees year round from wherever you are. It's, it's pretty awesome. You still got 15 seconds left, Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> there you go um question number two uh what is your favorite bar or restaurant well i took a year off drinking about four and a half years ago and never never got around to starting up again so uh so i don't hit a lot of bars uh these days at all um but uh i'm, I'm starting to try to think of uh where have i been that's been an interesting restaurant uh you know what i'd, I'd give meat on main points uh, again, I'm not like a, a vegan or vegetarian per se, uh, but meat, M-E-E-T, on Main, uh, the one in Yaletown, one in Gastown, one on Main Street, I, all three of them are, are funky and cool and great menus. You know what? I just I was away on the weekend with a friend who brought up meat on uh, in Gastown, and he said that his friend said, oh, I got a great burger joint to to show you. And he said, well, it's not veg- meat. It's not vegetarian, is it? No, 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 no. And uh, it was not until the food was on the table that my friend asked their <laughs> the serving staff. And the guy had been eating there like uh, weekly, and he was convinced he was eating meat burgers. <laughs> totally. Yeah, they have a black bean patty. Uh, the Angry Bird yeah. is my go-to when I'm there. And, uh, and I'm celiac, so I'm always on the hunt for good gluten-free dining. And uh, so that's that's where they tick the box for me. It's uh, you know the, the fries are safe, the, the burger buns are safe, the patty's safe, and it just happened to be meatless. Um, but uh, yeah, great great meals. Downtown penthouse or Westside Mansion? <laughs> well, I'm not in a penthouse currently downtown, uh, but but you know again I. Uh, I think I'm just getting tired of driving around and I'm a total car guy. I mean, I like a nice car, but the West side mansion, I, then I got to get in my car yeah. to go just about anywhere. And, um, I'm just, I'm burning out on it. I, I love walking and I never thought I'd say I like jumping on the sky train. I was you know, a bit of a snob that way, uh, as a lot of us suburban, uh, tend to be. Um, but now I love it. You know, jump on the train. Ten minutes later, you're on Commercial Drive, checking yeah. out a whole variety of new restaurants. Uh, you know, Twenty minutes later, you're at the airport without having to deal with the park and ride and the hassle and everything else. Yeah, it's yeah to be a downtown penthouse for this guy. Right on. Well, speaking of car guys, I think you once did this interview while uh, parking one time. You remember that, Adam? Yeah, I think you gave like a, super uh, succinct answers while you were uh, parallel parking. And it was like a Ford F one fifty or something. 
<laughs> I still got the F one fifty, not not the Optum downtown vehicle. Uh, yeah. um, where's the first per- place that you take someone from out of town, Dustin? The first place I would take somebody out of town at the moment, and it's just topical because I was uh, staring at it this morning when I went for a walk around the block. I take them up to the top of Grouse Mountain. Very nice. You know, or, or even just take them for a spin up to Cyprus, up to the viewpoint. Yeah. Like, this is where I live. This is what it looks like. Ocean, mountains, cool little downtown core, huge park. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's a pretty good spot to get a good view of what's what. And last question, what is something you've bought in the last couple of years for under $500 that has transformed your life or at least made it better? <laughs> uh, I'm glad you didn't give me any time to prepare because I'd probably, uh, <laughs> I'd probably have, I'd, I'd, I'd have spent a lot of time trying to think about that. And it's interesting timing because I am going extreme minimalist and I have been just taking all kinds of things out of my life. Um, you know, actually what I'm going to go with, can I, can I, can I make it two things that kind of go hand in hand? Sure. All right. So there's actually a few more things that have built out from it uh, since, but I'm going to give, you know, it's going to be a three part answer. So first off, pick up the book or tune into the audio book better yet. uh, Why we sleep by Matthew Walker. Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, PhD, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. Sleep is just, uh, well, it's one of my favorite things to do, but I don't want to do it a whole lot, but I've realized I need to do it a little bit more than I was and a little bit better than I was. So the two things I've bought, one is called the uh, Sleep Master Sleep Mask, or in a pinch, the Dream Sleeper Sleep Mask. Spend the 35 bucks, get the high end wraps all the way around your head, Velcros at the back, satin, nice, comfortable sleep mask. And um, Max earplugs, M-A-C-K-S. Max pillow soft silicone putty earplugs. They're not the foam that, you know, sort of fall out. They're a big piece of almost like silly putty. And on airplanes, phenomenal. I spend a lot of time on airplanes, as I mentioned. Um, But even if you've moved from, you know, you can hear a pin drop at night, suburban life uh, to downtown life, uh, or even if you just have a snore uh, in, in your orbit, those earplugs and that sleep mask are game changers. And uh, and the book will inspire you to level up the way in which you're sleeping. I can imagine the steward or stewardess is not bugging you uh, to see if you want peanuts on the plane with the mask and the earplugs in. Nobody's uh, nobody's bugging me, and better yet, I'm not bugging anybody. I mean, as you can tell, I like to talk, and I used to be the worst person to sit next to on an airplane. Uh, <laughs> you know, now now I break out the sleep mask and the earplugs, and I look at the person next to me, and I say, I'm I'm either the best person or worst person to be sitting next to. It depends on what you were hoping for, but <laughs> I'm out. And, uh, and it's and it's awesome because those earplugs. I mean, they they do they take that 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 background drone of air travel is actually very draining psychologically. Like when people arrive tired from a four or five hour flight or longer, a huge part of why they're tired is just simply the noise. So those earplugs are, uh, and then I do put noise canceling headphones on over the earplugs. But I think it's twenty two decibels or something they knock off. It's absolutely unreal. You have no huge idea difference. the flight is going down. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I was flying. I tried to, <laughs> hey, I just flew. I just flew home from Cancun on a seven thirty seven Max. Oh, uh, I was down there for for three or four nights for a conference, and a beautiful plane. And I have to go back for another conference in a couple of weeks. And uh, I was real happy that I'm going to be on this brand new 737 Max. And anyway, of course, they grounded the planes, and now they got me on some rouge plane, and I'm going to be packed in there like a sardine. So <laughs> earplugs and sleep mask, it'll be. <laughs> right on. Well, hey, it's always good to have you on the show, Dustin. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, fascinating as always. Yeah, and, and how can people find out more about your, your new role, what you're doing, and about Mortgage Architects? Yeah, well, like I say, I'm not really on the hunt for uh, mortgage applicants per se, but we're we're always uh, willing to have conversations with aspiring or existing mortgage brokers. And um, I'm you know same phone number I've had for 25 years, 604-351-1253. I'm still going to keep the DustinWoodhouse.ca website going and uh, keep sharing the different thoughts that uh, I have on the mortgage market and the legislation that pops up and, and the like. And um, email address is on the website, so easy to reach through there. Well, well, thanks again, Dustin, and it's uh, always a pleasure having you on the show. Appreciate it, guys. Uh, always, always great to be invited back. Thank you so much. Okay, take care, Dustin. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Dustin Woodhouse, President. Dustin Woodhouse from Mortgage Architects. You know, it's great having Dustin on the program. He's one of our favorite guests. And what I love about Dustin is literally you don't have to come up with questions for him. You just kind of say, here's what we want to talk about. And you push play. And I said, government and finance. Go, 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 go. (laughs) And uh, an hour later, we had to cut him off. But uh, it was all fascinating and uh, really yeah, great. The thing great. about the thing you about learn, Dustin, you always too, learn something. You always learn something. He packages things very, very intelligently. He's got a lot of smart things to say, uh, and uh, and there's never any wasted space. I mean, it's all really interesting stuff. So the fact that he can do it all while uh, you know making a souffle and uh, and not even paying attention is is amazing. Was he making a souffle? I don't know. I don't know. He was, was doing like, something. I I could. I think he was out for like his brisk morning walk or something. Yeah. Let's just I, put it this way. Dustin Woodhouse is more productive than you. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not talking you, Adam. I mean you, anyone who's listening. No, myself included. Uh, but anyways, it's uh, what else do we got? We got VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is a website you should be checking out for sure. We got a live news feed. We got Deal of the Month, which is in the live wire. That's our weekly updated mailer. We're also sending out deals as we come across them. We just came across something at uh, Vancouver House. Keep that one a secret. That one's got to be secret. on the mailer. Yeah, it's going to go out this week. Uh, man, exceptional pricing for one beds at Vancouver House right now. Cannot I cannot believe that I one. I think it is the last month that you can assign them right yeah. now. People are feeling the heat, the pressure. The pressure's on. You want to be on this list. We also got private client services, that real estate research tool. Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. It's basically realtor-level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com backslash PCS, and you can sign up for free. You can. If you're using PCS, 
you're on the right track. You are on the right track. <laughs> and if you're not using PCS, you're doing it wrong. That's right. Um, oh, my God. Trademark the, that quick. It is It is the best <laughs> research tool out there. Um, I like that. Switch it up to the affirmative. Yeah. Um, I'm a positive guy. If yeah, you yeah. want to talk more about this or anything else, positive or negative, yeah. give me a shout, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And if your glass is half full, I'm available as well. 778-866-4574. Or Adam at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. We also got that info line if the glass is half empty. <laughs> info at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. <laughs> Emanating joy. Emanating joy. Oh, man. This is like a. Did it just start raining? It was like a beautiful day out there. It was beautiful. All right, guys. Have a good week. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.